0: And the first of the reading is from Psalm 102, starting at verse 1. Hear my prayer, Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. In my distress, I groan aloud, and am reduced to skin and bones. I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake, I have become like a bird, alone on a roof. All day long my enemies taunt me, those who rail against me use my name as a curse. For I eat ashes as my food, and mingle my drink with tears. Because of your great wrath, for you have taken me up and thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion. For it is time to show her, to show favor to her. The appointed time has come. And the second reading is from Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you would assume me three times, And he went outside and wept bitterly. The last reading is from Isaiah chapter 53, starting at verse seven. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer And though the the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, Because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors.
1: Thank you very much, Emily, for reading for us this evening. And uh, we're thinking about a complete saviour. A complete saviour. Let us pray together now. Father, as we uh, uh, now just fairly briefly... Open up this uh, this last reading that we've had from Isaiah 53. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, teach us truth about Jesus and about His cross, for His name's sake. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I um, I do like jobs to be finished so for instance just recently we've had uh, uh, we've got a bit of a flat roof just over the road and uh, just recently it's been replaced and to get up there they needed scaffolding and you know what scaffolders do they put up the scaffolding the job's done and then they leave it there, and uh, and they leave it there until so it saves taking it back to their base and so on. Apparently all scaffolders do it, and the scaffolding is still there, weeks on, and who knows how long it's going to be there for. But uh, I just wish, it just seems to me the job's not quite finished until the scaffolding is taken away, but there we are. Um, or, uh, you know, you take the washing out of the washing machine, and it seems to me if you're going to finish the job, you need to hang it up, don't you? And then once it's dry, you need to get it ironed. You've got to finish the job. And uh, uh, and when it comes to cutting the grass, for instance, we've all just started cutting grass again, haven't we, after the last five months or whatever it's been, four or five months. And uh, it just seems to me you've got to do those long bits around the edge that the mower didn't get to, and then you've got to cut the edges of the lawn, really, haven't you, to, to finish the job. I do like a job finished okay and when it comes to the cross there's no loose ends there's nothing yet to complete there's nothing to clear up it's job done completely and utterly to the last drop and Jesus is our complete saviour And these verses we're looking at from verses seven to twelve of Isaiah chapter fifty-three. They're the the final part of the the final of the fourth, the final servant song. It's about Jesus, and they're called servant songs or poems because they're about the servant. And right at the start of this one in chapter fifty-two, it says there um, in verse thirteen of chapter fifty-two: "See, my servant will act wisely," and this is speaking about the servant. And this is speaking about Jesus. And this last part, from verses 7 to 12, you read that and you hear it and you think, oh, maybe we ought to stand up for it. And uh, it may, I hope it does, and I hope it, if it doesn't now that it will, make you feel actually, I'd rather like to read that again. Maybe tonight or maybe first thing in the morning. And uh, But do please do that if, uh, if you can. It could be a really valuable thing to do. So a complete saviour complete saviour and the first thing to say is this jesus is a dying saviour and that's in verses seven to nine now we have to remember this is written about 750 or so whatever it was uh, years before jesus lived but many people think it's an accurate description first of, the, if you like, the procession. That just doesn't quite seem the wrong, the right word, does it? But let's call it the procession to Calvary in verse 7. And then the execution at Calvary in verse 8. And then the burial after Calvary in verse 9. So at verse 7, first of all, going up to Calvary, the procession, if you like, um, he was oppressed. That's a word that speaks of ruthless physical brutality. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. On the way to Calvary, Jesus led like a lamb to the slaughter and silent as he went. Now, Isaiah was, was a Jew. And uh, uh, those who were the first to read this prophecy would have been Jews. And as they read these words, like a lamb to the slaughter... They would immediately have thought Passover lamb, and that night, Exodus chapter 12, where they slaughtered, cut the throat of a lamb, and then they put its blood on the uh, uh, above the door and down on the doorposts as well, so that when the destroying angel came through the land and saw that blood, he would pass over that house. And the cross of Christ happened at Passover. And the Lamb of God, his own son, was slaughtered for our sins. The procession. In verse 8, the execution. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. When it says uh, uh, by oppression and judgment, the uh, the original there is really very unclear. A number of places here, actually, uh, in the Hebrew, um, I'm told. I'm no good at Hebrew. Um, but uh, I'm told a number of places here, things are quite unclear. But it could well say here and mean... After his arrest and trial, he was led away. Or uh, it could mean without justice, he was led away. Without justice, he was led away, which is certainly true, isn't it? And who protested? Who took Jesus' side? Who was uh, his defense counsel, if you like? No one. No one. His disciples deserted him, and everyone else wanted him dead. So it seems. So he went to Calvary to die for the sin of his people. Now we've all heard of the Irish potato famine, haven't we? In the 19th century in Ireland, well, obviously it's the Irish potato famine, and uh, um, uh, and it was it was absolutely it was absolutely hideous because they were forced to grow. Potatoes because their their holdings that they they had were very, very small. And, uh, uh, And they were forced to grow potatoes and between 1845 and 52, a million died of starvation. And another million emigrated to the States. And during the famine, some of the families um, uh, weren't able to pay the rents on their estate, understandably. And there was a, a man called Canon Fawcett, the Reverend Canon Fawcett, who was a rector of a church in New York. And uh, some of his tenants wrote to him begging him to let them off. And he replied, I'm very sorry, but I couldn't possibly do that. It would be wrong, it would be a bad precedent if I let you off, and I can't make an exception. You must pay the bills to the last penny you think, that's just outrageous, isn't it? That's cruel, and he's a clergyman. But then he enclosed with the letter a slip of paper. It was a check, more than sufficient to cover all they owed. So that justice was done, and their debts were paid. And that's just a tiny, tiny little picture, isn't it? Of what a com- God accomplished through Jesus on the cross. So that justice was done and our debts were paid by Jesus on the cross. A dying saviour. Who, verse 9, was then buried. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Died between two criminals, buried in a borrowed tomb. He did not die for his own wrongdoing and rebellion, though, did he? No, he died for ours, A dying saviour. And then the second thing to notice in verses 10 and 11 is that he is a, a sin-bearing saviour a sin-bearing saviour someone said the verses 10 and 11 is like a, a reservoir just picture uh, an upland area a reservoir and all these little streams and tributaries and so on are flowing down into it and someone said that this is a bit like the the very center and the focus of the thought and the theology and the truth of isaiah chapter 52 and 53 And this is the very center of the cross. If you like, this is holy ground. A Puritan writer wrote this. The son of God was made the son of man that the sons of men might become the sons of God. He took our misery that we might have his glory. He was born of a woman. That we might be born of God. Christ was really sin for us. That we might be really righteous in him. Now have a look at uh, verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. But you see there the uh, in verse 10, when it says there, an offering for sin. Now that is based on the idea of a guilt offering in Leviticus uh, chapters 5 and 6. And the striking thing here is how there is a, an exact parallel between what happened with the uh, um, with the with the guilt offering in leviticus and uh, what is being said here and there's a uh, and there's a, a parallel a, 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 a an exactness between the problem and the remedy so the remedy is an exact fit for the problem it is the perfect fit the perfect solution for the problem that we have he is an offering For the sin of people, perfect and appropriate as an offering for the sin of people, a blemish-free human who could die in the place of other humans and not for his own sin because he had not committed any wrongdoing whatsoever, ever. Now look at the start of verse 10 and the end of it. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And then at the end of verse 10, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. About the Lord's will... Um it's probably better to translate, yes, it was the Lord's will to crush him. Now, this might sound really grotesque, but it's probably better to translate it. It was the Lord's pleasure, pleasure to crush him. And if you like, the pleasure of the Lord will prosper In his hand. Let me read Alex Alec Matea, who wrote about this. Through him as mediator, we come to the Father, and knowing partially but terrifyingly all that unfits us for his presence and fits us for his wrath, we find ourselves in the presence of love beyond anything known on earth. The voice which says I was delighted when my son died for you, and I am still delighted. We have a dying saviour, a sin-bearing saviour, and we can understand the delight of the father in this next point when we see that he is a victorious saviour in verse 12 there. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Again, look at little letters there. There are other translations. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Therefore, I will give him a portion with the great. It makes it sound as if Jesus is among the top 20 greatest human beings. One of them, you know, maybe is in the top five, maybe. No, of course not. Jesus isn't just in the top 20 or within the top five or whatever. There is no doubt, is there, that Jesus is outstandingly, incomparably, perfectly the greatest, most wonderful, most extraordinary human being who has ever lived without comparison. No, the true translation here is probably more like i will give him the many as his portion as his reward the many being the whole company of people for whom jesus has died the many being you and me the many being the christian church down the ages and across the nations past present and future i will give him the many as his portion, as his reward, if you like. And that's you and me. This is speaking about us. And then the rest of the first half of verse 12. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. or better probably, I will allocate to Jesus the many and the strong will be spoil. I wonder if when he's talking about the strong, whether he means the devil, because the devil is referred to as the strong man, for instance. And when he's talking about spoil here, he's really talking about a slag heap. Think of... The days of coal mines and slag heaps above the town and so on. So the servant is the greatest and he's saying that even the strongest, even the strong man will be defeated and will be Jesus' spoil. Or if you like, the devil will be on Jesus' slag heap because of the cross. And that is a great victory. Isn't that the most wonderful victory? The devil on Jesus' slag heap because of the cross. And because of that victory. And why is the servant uh, treated in this way? We look at the end of the verse there. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. The servant, Jesus, poured out his life for us. Was numbered amongst us. He identified with us in our sinfulness, in our rebellion, in our wrongdoing, in our perverse hearts. And he bore the sin which is ours. And now... He's praying for you. He's making intercession with his father on our behalf. He prayed for us, you know, John 17 and so on. But actually Romans tells us he now makes intercession for us before the throne of the Lord Almighty. So how about that? For a victorious Saviour, the complete Saviour, it is extraordinary, simply wonderfully extraordinary—a dying Saviour, a sin-bearing Saviour, a victorious Saviour, the complete Saviour. Our save it